You know, that first paragraph we read this morning was supposed to be the conclusion of our time together last week, but admittedly, I ran out of time. Uh, But in short, the religious leaders of Israel had turned what was made to be rest on the Sabbath day and a time of enjoyment, a time of worshiping our God, and turned it into a time of ritualism. A, time, a burdensome time and a time that was defined by obligation rather than rest. Something that as we dissected that, we realized the church today needs to be aware of that as well. But after that altercation, Jesus goes into the synagogue, as we read in verse 9. And in verse 10, a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And make no mistake, this is a setup. They're doing this quite purposely. This was a, see how it says in the text, so that they might accuse him. This was a purposeful effort to try to get Jesus to heal on the Sabbath in front of them so that they might accuse him of breaking some of those man-made laws and traditions that we talked about last time. So they're trying to get him to sin in their own minds uh, in front of everybody. (laughs) It is interesting that just six chapters later in Matthew, uh, Jesus says it would be better to have a millstone weighing hundreds if not thousands of pounds wrung around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to have someone stumble into sin on your account. The hypocrisy and double standards of the Pharisees are on full display here, trying to get in their own minds Jesus to sin. But nevertheless, Jesus answers their question in verse 11, where he said, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus once again beautifully explains the true heart of Scripture. That as we, as he worded it in the prior paragraph, it was mercy, not sacrifice. That was the point of the law. The purpose of the law was not to burden us with laws that make no sense. Think about it. Why prolong this man's suffering any longer just because it's the Sabbath? Is it evil to withhold uh, good when you know that you can do good to another person? It kind of is. That's the sin here. But, and besides that fact, what's easier? Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath or pulling a sheep out of a pit, as he points out? Have you guys ever tried to lift a sheep? Those things are heavy. So I guarantee you it was easier for Jesus to use his power as God to heal this this man's hand than it would have been for any of us to lift a sheep out of a pit. But yet the Pharisees still opposed him and conspired to destroy him. 
Isn't that interesting? (laughs) Ironic that healing on the Sabbath is illegal in their minds, but apparently conspiring to commit murder is not. Interesting. But Jesus, in his infinite knowledge, knows what they're up to, and he withdraws in verse 15, it says, um, that, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. And this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. And before we talk about what Isaiah wrote, Jesus was incredibly courageous, but he was not careless in his approach. They knew that that they were plotting to destroy him, but he also knew that it was not time yet for them to succeed in their efforts. That time was still yet to come. So he strategically withdraws from there. And it's, and it's notable that the Pharisees are doing this all out of spite. That's their big motivator. They're spiteful. They're jealous. They, they, they're jealous of his influence and his power and how he's against all the things that they are for. And yet, the, Jesus, as, as the Pharisees are motivated out of spite, Jesus is motivated out of compassion. Those two couldn't be any more different. You know, it's not said so straightforward in the text, but every time Jesus heals somebody, when the motive is revealed, it's always his compassion that motivated Jesus to heal and to touch someone. And so this chasm between the established religious leaders of the time and Jesus Christ is becoming more and more clear. And it's no wonder why people are being drawn to Jesus. In that culture of legalism and it being all about the law and keeping the rules and the rules becoming more and more burdensome, Jesus in his embodiment of grace, his message would have shined brightly into this world that so desperately needed that message. And my prayer is that we too would carry that same message into our world today. The world needs more grace, love, and forgiveness, not less. And that's what the church is called to display above all else. And you know, this world is just like that world, if you think about it. Um, Legalism is still running quite rampant in our culture these days. Not just in the religious sense, in the secular sense as well. There's a secular version of legalism. We've called it cancel culture the last couple of years. Where just one thing that you said 10, 15 years ago online could be dug up and your reputation could be ruined. You could be fired from your job for a tweet that you made when you were 20 years old. Man, aren't some of you guys glad you didn't grow up in today's times? Aren't you glad some of those things that you said in the 70s and 80s there's no record of? (laughs) I know I'm not the only one. (laughs) Or furthermore, if you go against the prevailing media narratives these days, oh, you'll be legalistically labeled everything under the sun. You'll be called a, a bigot, a misogynist. You'll be called phobic or racist for just going against some of those big established media narratives even if you are none of the above. Because that's just how this world works that we live in these days. That's the kind of legalism that exists today and the same spirit existed 2,000 years ago. The hearts of men don't change. 
But sadly, what some things do, many churches today don't extend forgiveness the way we are called to. We don't embody God's grace, love, and forgiveness, but we too can embody more legalism. We can embody uh, for an emphasis of, well, you've sinned, now you got to do more works and penance and show that you are ready to be reconciled to God. Let us be the church that mo- models compassion. Let us be the church that models forgiveness and reconciliation. Let people see us in the things that we do through this church and see the life and the joy we have in our own hearts, flowing from our own healthy relationship with God. And let that be what is on display. And that too will draw people to Christ. And the reason, by the way, that all of this is happening all throughout Matthew 12, his healings, Jesus' lordship over the Sabbath, why he didn't get violent with the Pharisees in return, why he withdrew before it was, before it was time for his final confrontation with the religious leaders, is because of who Jesus is. And Matthew reveals really the heart of who Jesus is in this upcoming quote from Isaiah 42. Now, remember, Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus was even born. And he's revealing him so perfectly, this whole stage of his ministry. He he did so through several servant songs, they are called, throughout the book of Isaiah, such as this one quoted in Matthew beginning in that next verse. But that chapter, Isaiah 42, especially describes who Jesus is, what he is like, his heart for others, rather than just what he will do. And Matthew quotes it here to make sense out of a lot of the events that have been taking place in this chapter, pointing out that none of this is an accident that's taking place. Almost to point out, all is going according to plan. And by the way, since our goal as Christians, our goal in our Christian life is Christ-likeness, as we study who Jesus is, there's going to be a lot that we can apply to our own lives too. So, take note. So, let's answer the question, who is Jesus? In verse 18, it says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So who is Jesus? First, Jesus is God's servant, it says. It's not the first word we think of sometimes, is it, when we think of who Jesus is? But that's the first word used here to describe him. Yes, have no doubt, he is king of kings and lord of lords, and that will be on full display at the second coming of Christ. But his first coming was one categorized as a servant for our betterment. In our first reading in Philippians 2, we are told to count others as more significant than ourselves out of this same spirit of humility, looking to the interest of others and not just our own. And we're told to do so that because that's what Jesus did for us. That 
Even though he was God, he humbled himself, took the form of a servant, and was obedient even to the death of the cross. So that's the level of obedience and servanthood that Jesus has modeled for us, is what that verse is getting at. So Jesus can be categorized as a servant, and the question comes to us, are we serving each other? Are we approaching each other in humility, looking out for others' needs and not just our own in this increasingly greedy culture we find ourselves in? I'll leave us on that thought. Second, in Jesus, it says God's soul is well-pleased. Well-pleased. That should bring to mind perhaps that moment of Jesus' baptism in Luke 3.22, where he said, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well-pleased. It's interesting that Jesus is rejected and hated to the point of murder by the Pharisees. But to God, he is well pleased with Christ. You know, people will say all kinds of things about Jesus over the rest of this gospel. Just read the next paragraph and you'll see some bad ones. But, (laughs) and people to this day say all kinds of things about Jesus and who he is and making all kinds of snarky comments. But what matters is, is that God is pleased with him. God is pleased with his ministry. God the Father. And so we, may, we need not be ashamed of him either. We need not be ashamed of his ways or what his word says. Yeah, the world might be hostile toward or snarky with it, but we need not be ashamed of what God is pleased in. That's the big takeaway for us today. And that there's that lesson there for us, that we don't need to esteem so highly what the world thinks of us. And I don't, need to, I don't know who needs to hear this. Maybe one of you does, but stop trying so hard to get the world to like you. I mean, James 4.4 4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Guys, and maybe you guys have noticed this, but the values of God and his word are radically at odds with the values of this present age. I'm sure some of you have noticed. It's just not worth it. <laughs> but furthermore, Jesus, uh, Isaiah, quoted by Matthew, says, I will put my spirit upon him. And that makes very clear the kind of power Jesus has. It's not from Satan, as we'll be addressing next week, as he'll shortly be accused of, but from God. Now, Jesus has a very unique relationship with the Holy Spirit, of course. Let me take a moment to explain that. Because when Jesus was born, he added humanity to his deity with nothing being subtracted. Since that day, Jesus has been 100% man and simultaneously 100% God, never being less than either. And we have to keep that in mind because it's easy to steer into heresy when you start talking about stuff like this. But Jesus' divine nature has never been nor ever will be separated from the Holy Spirit. You can't 
divide up a tri- the triune God whose, div- whose main characteristic is unity with each other. But in his humanity, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man, according to Luke 2.52. And you see that with Jesus, in Jesus' humanity, you see him getting hungry. You see him getting thirsty and tired. You see that throughout the scriptures. And also in that humanity, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove at his baptism, as we just explained. Uh, And we just referred to from Luke chapter 3. And that wasn't Jesus being baptized in the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit for the first time in that sense. Um, Because frankly, he was conceived in the Holy Spirit, as uh, Matthew uh, 1 verse 20 tells us. Rather, Jesus was being anointed for ministry in that moment where the Spirit descended upon him like a dove. It was, co- it was modeling what had been done so commonly throughout the Old Testament that the, the priests were anointed in the Old Testament before ministry. You will see that many leaders throughout the Old Testament were anointed with the Spirit, like Moses in uh, Numbers ver- uh, chapter 11, or David in Psalm 51, even Saul, King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10. So it's following that model. Some people kind of go off into various different camps with this. Uh, but the, the core of what's being taught here is actually quite simple. And by the way, I'm, I'm spending so much time on this because it, it's important to understand what the Bible actually does say about who Jesus is and how all of this comes together. There's, there's lots of erroneous teachings, especially about the Holy Spirit these days within the church. And my friend Dr. Falzerano, when he came out here a number of weeks ago, probably a month or two ago by now, um, when he came out here and he, he beautifully corrected that Jesus did not empty himself of his deity when he became a man. He did not stop being God to become a man. You run into all kinds of problems theologically when you, when you start thinking like that. And your, your view of God and even your view of yourself can get so warped up when you don't have that correctly. But if you study what is written about the deity of Christ in Scripture, we'll be less likely to be led astray in these things. That, that, that's what I'm getting at here. It's, it's, it's a similar principle to what bankers do, believe it or not. You see, a banker will never study a counterfeit $100 bill. Some of you may or may not know that. They never will. What they do is they study thoroughly the authentic thing. They don't need to know all of the various counterfeits if you know exactly what the real thing is. And so they know the exact color it's supposed to be. They know the the feel of the material. They know every little watermark and every little everything on it. That's That's what they're supposed to do. They'll spend countless hours studying the real thing. And that's what we're here to do. We study the real thing so that when we see something's a little bit off, we can start asking questions and maybe not be so quickly to accept something that is counterfeit. So if it feels like I'm being overly technical, it's for a reason, because there's a lot of counterfeits out there that have consequences if they are believed. 
Now, I'm going to go back, come back to that line about justice for the Gentiles in just a moment, but I want, I want to keep us going into verse 19 that says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will, he hear, will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Matthew making it crystal clear why Jesus walked away in that conflict with the Pharisees. That Jesus is not quarrelsome. He is not argumentative. He is not overly aggressive. Jesus is a threat to no one and can be approached by anyone. But he wasn't a pushover either. Let's keep that in mind. No, he stood up for what was right. He never ran away when the argument came to him. No, he never hesitated to push back against the Pharisees when the fight came to his front door, if you will. He pushed back against Pontius Pilate and his, you know, erroneous assumptions about why he was standing before him. Jesus had no issue pushing back. And some of us need to learn that Conflict isn't always a bad thing. It's not. Sometimes conflict is just pushing back against evil, which is a good thing, which is an admirable trait. It is a good thing to push back against the evil in this world. That is good. But others of us need to learn that not every hill is worth dying on. We need Jesus wouldn't break a bruised reed or quench a wick that's about to go out. He was gentle. He was restorative. He even wouldn't even put out the slightest effort to put out a flame that was about to go out. And some of us need to be reminded to be that gentle and loving and restorative to others. That the goal of Pushing back against evil ought to be restoration, correction, repentance, not just winning an argument, not to crush somebody. We need to be reminded not everyone is an enemy, nor should we treat others as such. And so wherever you guys fall on that spectrum, because we're all somewhere on that spectrum, we can look to Jesus to be that thing to center us, to point us, push us back to correct exactly where it is. And we all need that. I'm sure most of us are probably thinking of somebody else as I'm saying that. Somebody else who needs to hear that. But we need to ask that of ourselves. Where are we on that spectrum? And where can we be corrected? Because we all do. And finally, and very, very quickly, the end of verse 18 and verse 21. That says, he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The, the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles was a significant thing back then. But yet, Romans 1 tells us the gospel was to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, or to the Gentile, to the non-Jewish people like ourselves. It was God's plan, or rather, it was never God's plan to only save the Jews. It was always his plan that all nations of the earth would be saved through them, though. And we now know through the 
clarity that we have of the New Testament and passages like Matthew just quoted from in the Old Testament, that that person that was going to save the world through, wasn't the Jewish nation as a whole, but through that Messiah who was to come and to save the people from their sins. (laughs) Even as early as Genesis 12 verse 3, God said to Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. You can't make sense of that verse without the Messiah. Our Jewish friends have tried, and I find their their alternative explanations thoroughly unsatisfying. It only makes sense through the Savior that has brought the gospel to the whole world of which we are all collectively saved through in that sense. Now justice, it says, is coming for all Gentile nations, which is actually bad news when you think about it. When you think about what the word justice means, the word justice means to give somebody what they deserve. And as we thought, as we uncovered in the last couple of weeks, We don't want what we deserve. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We do not want the full consequences of sin, which is what we would deserve. What we don't don't want is justice. We want hope. We want forgiveness. We want restoration. That's what we need. And the hope that we have is that the justice we deserve to be inflicted upon us was inflicted upon another On our behalf. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 so beautifully states, For our sake he made him who to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus took our sin upon himself so that we might be cleansed and reconciled to God. And not just the removal of our sins, but the gift of his righteousness as well. The picture is that when God looks at those who believe the gospel, he doesn't see us for our sin-stained lives that we have lived. But when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of God in us, that he has given us as a gift. That's what he sees. And is there any greater reason for hope than that? I don't think so. That is what Jesus has done for us. And all of this paints a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is God's servant. He is whom he is well pleased in, who is of the Spirit of God who is not argumentative but kind to the broken, and the Savior who brings justice to all and hope for all of us who trust in him. Thanks be to God. Amen.